that you, Dave? <clears throat> All right. Anybody ever been afraid of the dark? Come on, give me some love. <laughs> I'm not the only one. How about anybody never been afraid of the dark? <laughs> when I was a kid, lived in rural northern BC on an acreage in a house heated by a wood furnace. This was in the northern interior. Winter temperatures very similar to Edmonton. There was a period of time in which uh, my major wintertime chore was to have the wood box beside the furnace filled with the necessary kindling, the, the finely chopped wood to start a fire, and the next wood, the next size up, and then a few uh, big log-sized pieces. The expected outcome was that when my father got up early in the morning, everything was there ready for him to start the fire. Now, I'm sure that period of time was perhaps only one or two winter seasons, but in my memory, it feels like it was my entire childhood because it was a very traumatic period for me. Not because I was lazy. I I don't think I was. Uh, Not because I was unmotivated. I, I knew that the one way I could prove myself to my father was by working hard. And not because this was meaningless make work work. This was heavy duty responsibility stuff. Unless I did my job, my father would be late for work. He let me know that. Or my mother would have to add that to her plate. Or the family would freeze. And not because I didn't like this work. I loved using the axe. I had a dream of getting as good and as accurate with that axe as my mother, who could chop kindling almost as fast as she chopped noodles. Missing her fingers by millimeters. The reason this was so traumatic for me is because I had to do it in the dark. Behind the house, all alone. And I had a paralyzing fear of the dark, seriously. The chopping block was set up under a bare light bulb just outside the garage door at the side of the house. But the wood I had to chop was in the woodshed down the wooden sidewalk behind the house, totally in the dark. The details of that trip to the woodshed and back are still vivid in my memory. The worst part was not walking to the woodshed. That was scary, but I could could handle walking into the dark. It was walking back from the woodshed that was the problem. I tried to carry as much as possible so I could only have to make the trips a a couple of times, but with the dark at my back, I, I couldn't help but all of a sudden start running, and then I would drop most of my load. So I found a solution. I would walk backwards from that woodshed (laughs) so I could see the dark in front of me. And then I would fall and dump the whole load. (laughs) My greatest fear? I knew. I was absolutely sure that out of the dark, at any moment, a huge tiger was going to leap out and devour me. Seriously. Below freezing, northern BC, go figure. I wasn't afraid of the bears that were out there. I'd seen them on my property because I, I knew they were hibernating. But the tigers... I have no idea where that came from. Do you you realize how much of our life is controlled or at least influenced by fear? Much of it is unrealistic. But much of it is also realistic fear. Fear is the emotion that is most studied by neuroscience. 
The emotion we know most about from a physiological perspective, what happens in our brains and the rest of our body that makes fear so powerful and controlling an emotion. But even though we know quite a bit about what happens in our bodies, we really don't much about, know much about what causes it to happen. And one of the leading researchers in this field cautions people about drawing too many conclusions, even from his own research. He doesn't say it, but, but the underlying issue seems to me to be that mind and brain are not the same, right? The physiological response we can understand, although we can't directly control it, but as human beings, we do have some influence over how we respond that will ultimately influence the physiological perspective. So how do you deal with fear? All of that to say that although I forget completely who it was that said it, who it was they said it to, or what the occasion was in which it was said, I vividly remember the question that was asked. Somebody had reacted to a certain event, overreacted, in the opinion of those of us who witnessed it, and and in the awkward debriefing conversation that followed the scene that was made, somebody quietly, gently, but with a tone of authority, asked the question, what is it you were afraid of? Now, the person, of course, denied that they were afraid. They insisted on their complete objectivity, but I remember wondering if he spoke a little too quickly. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, good question. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that perhaps the reason I was thinking about it was because it was probably a question I could learn to ask myself a little more often. So what are you afraid of? And perhaps, even more importantly, the follow-up question, why? What is it you're really afraid of? That is the kind of listening to myself that can lead to self-insight and perhaps another step of growth. One mark of of maturity in a marriage is, is the ability to admit our fears to each other and to explore some of our underlying fears with each other in a loving, encouraging, and grace-filled way. Listen to each other's insights into that question. As I was thinking about that this week, I, I realized that that's one of the qualities in my own marriage that I value so, so much and don't want to violate. One more question. When is it that fear tends to be most crippling? It is at night, isn't it? Most of us eventually grow out of our fear of the dark, but it's in the dark while we're trying to sleep. Our fears come to the surface, and for some reason, we don't have the mental energy to push them down. It's in the night that fear turns to crippling anxiety and controlling worry, right? One of the signs that fear is beginning to be dysfunctional is when, for for more than just one night, it's impairing your ability to get a good night's rest. I'm still thoroughly enjoying my Christmas present, a wristband fitness monitor. I'm enjoying it not because it's helped me increase my fitness yet. I'm enjoying it because it has a fairly well-developed sleep monitor. I've learned a few things about my sleep, or lack thereof. Number one, I've learned I'm not as bad a sleeper as I thought I was. The one thing my fitness monitor has revealed that I can no longer deny is that I am a very active sleeper. (laughs) 
I wake up in the morning and sometimes it tells me that I've already walked between 300 and 400 steps. I don't even sleepwalk, my poor wife. If she looks a little tired, it's my fault. But there's one thing my fitness monitor has revealed that I didn't need it to tell me. There is one night of the week that my sleep patterns are pretty different from every other night. And they're generally the same each night of that particular night every week. Saturday night. A lot more awake time. I've always said it's because I'm, I'm charged, ready for Sunday morning. But really, it probably has more to do with fear about Sunday morning. Not crippling fear, and not as much as there used to be, but it's there. Do you know how many years it took me to be transparent about that? I used to have this occasional recurring Saturday night nightmare. Not often, but a number of times. Same nightmare. In my dream, I was standing right here on this platform in the middle of teaching. I looked down and realized I was buck naked. <laughs> don't, spend, don't spend time thinking about that, but anyway. <laughs> In the rest of my dream, what I was doing is I was, I was trying to curl up into a ball and figure out which door was closest to me and how I could roll out of the room. <laughs> it was traumatic. Now, some of you are never going to take me seriously again. <laughs> I, I admitted it to no one, not even my wife. Well, maybe especially my wife. Until one day I read an article. And in that article, it said that there's a nightmare that many pastors have in common and it named my exact nightmare. Now you'll never take any pastor seriously again, right? Why are we talking about this? Because it's from the dark of night that our psalm for today is written. Another psalm in which we learn more about how God wants to rock our world, to be the rock in our world when fear tends to overwhelm us. I'd like you to turn, please, to uh, Psalm 27. If you've already turned there because you knew that's where we're going and have glanced through it, you might say, well, how do we know this psalm was written at night? Well, glance through it, you might see it. I, I don't know that it was written at night, but it's pretty obvious as you read and think through what it actually says that it was written for the night, for our nighttime fears. You know how I know that? Well, look at the very first line. God is my light. Duh. Most obvious thing that implies is that the psalmist is in the dark or he's thinking about the dark night he's just gone through, right? Isn't that obvious? It's, it's amazing what you can see just by looking. Do, do you know God is the God of your night when fear comes rolling over you like a dark cloud? Past, Pastor Dave likes to talk about real friends being those you can call at 2.30 in the morning. He calls them 2.30 at night friends. Is the God you know, the God you walk with, the God who walks with you, has he become your 2.30 at night God? This psalm is a poetic summary of how we can grow in knowing God as the God of the night. Listen to it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, my enemies and my foes are the ones who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. 
though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is the only thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. He's, he's stacking up words here for the temple he's talking about. And he will set me high upon a rock. He will rock my world. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be great, merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. And wait for the Lord. Before we walk our way through this psalm a little slower, let's just remind ourselves of who it is that's writing this psalm. This psalm is not written by by a holy man priest in a temple, spilling out religious catchphrases, but out of touch with real life. The author of this psalm, like many of the psalms, is David, King David. Do you realize what that means? Well, I I can think of two things that means. One's sort of a general one, and and the one's more specific regarding David. The general one is, you know, our our tendency when we're afraid, especially when we're afraid of people, and most of our fears have a people component to them, don't they? Our tendency is to think that if we were just one step higher up the ladder the relational ladder, the organizational ladder, if we were just in a position of power over them, we would no longer have to be afraid. We could deal with it, right? Think about the person you're afraid of, the person who, from how you're looking at, is the cause of your fears. Is not one of your thoughts, if I was just as powerful as them, if I could just access someone to take my side who has authority over them, I would not have to fear. Folks, life doesn't work that way. Now, I'm not saying you don't need access to someone who is above that person, and God certainly tells us to defend the cause of the weak and the powerless. But when it comes to fear, the reality is the higher you are up the ladder, the more you have to fear. Because the more people there are who want to knock you off. If, if, if you want to talk to somebody up the higher, if you talk to somebody higher up the ladder and, and they look tough and uber confident, it's an act. They're bluffing. You see, the way to get above that person is not to get a position of power over that person or to access a person of power over that person. David is at the top of the heap. And even for David, that wasn't a way he could stop his fears. Now, more specific. That statement, 
when it says before the psalm of David, that opens up a whole number of scenarios that we know of in which David finds himself, himself very literally in the situation that he's describing. For years, even though God had promised, had already anointed David as the future king, David is harassed, literally chased around the country by the powerful lunatic King Saul. And then Saul confesses and repents and warms up to David and lures him into his inner circle by buttering him up and then in an enclosed room, nowhere to go, he hucks knives at him to try and kill him. David finally gets to the throne and what happens? His rebel son, Solomon, tries to win the people to his side to literally overthrow him and take him out. When David writes in verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, when enemies attack me, though an army besiege me, that's not pastor speak. That's not hyperbole. David has literally lived all of that. And he lived it much of his life. His fear is real and it's realistic. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's, that's the normal word for fear, a spur-of-the-moment reaction. But then, in the next phrase, he takes it a step deeper. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That word is a stronger word. It's not referring to a momentary fright that courses through your body as a, as a reaction. It is sometimes translated dread, tremble, terrified. It's talking about an overwhelming condition that takes over us and controls our reactions. And, and what are those primary fear reactions? Well, we know the big three. Freeze, flee, or fight. Are you frozen? Crippled and can't make a decision? Most often, there's a fear factor behind that. What are you afraid of? Do you realize what you're really afraid of? When we have a pattern of running, quitting when the going gets tough, it's most often an underlying fear that's driving us. What is it? When we become aggressive, forcing, fighting, angry, and we convince ourselves that our extreme interpretations and our strong reactions are logical and justified, it's a huge time we need to ask ourselves, what are you afraid of? And then why? What is it you are really afraid of? So how can God become the God of the night? When I come to the point of admitting that behind my fight, flight, or frozenness is a fear that is crippling me, how can I actually leverage my fear for strength? As we walk our way through the psalm, let's see some of the ways the psalmist not only listens to himself, but he talks to himself. Because it's, it's funny in this prayer, you've got you to figure out, okay, is he talking to himself or is he talking to God at this point? Sometimes he's talking to God about what he has talked to himself, right? So that he can allow God to become for him the God who turns the dark of night into the light of day. First, let's look at how the psalm begins. How he has trained himself to, to begin his thinking pattern when it starts becoming dominated by fear. Does he begin by saying... God, here's my problem. Deal with it, please. 
God, if you really love me, you would take away this thing that's causing my fear. Interestingly enough, in this entire psalm, David never asks God to remove the situation. And he never tells God what God has to do to prove himself to him. He does not even begin with his problem. David begins with God. Now you have to realize that, again, that, that he's, although he's talking to God, he's just as much talking to himself. If, if your eyes are on the problem, that problem will grow bigger than it really is. We know that. We teach our kids that. But it happens to us, doesn't it? Listen to it again. But as you listen to it, visualize David in a cave in the rocks, in the quietness of the dark of night. It is eerie still. He doesn't even dare sneeze or even sniff. Because if he does, one of Saul's men might be close enough to hear. And it's like, gotcha! Right? You there? Now listen to David in his mind reaching out to God. You are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He says that to God and then what he says to God, he says to himself, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom do I need to be afraid? Where does reality begin? If there is a God, reality, all of reality began and always begins with God. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God. What is it we try to teach our kids when they're overwhelmed and overcome by the bigness of something? I could still hear my wife talk to my kids. Okay, how do we eat an elephant? One step at a time. What is it we ask someone who comes to us and spews out a whole big, confusing, terrifying experience in helping to eat, to them to do the one bite at a time thing? We, they, we say to them exactly what my insurance agent said to me about 12 days ago when I called her after getting my car schmucked. After I spewed up my piece, she's okay, let's walk through this thing one step at a time starting at the beginning. That's what David had taught his mind to do in the very real dominating fears that had come his way. Let's start looking at this thing in bite-sized chunks, beginning at the beginning, the foundation. The Lord is my light. He's the one who made light out of darkness in the first place. That's his specialty. That's who he is. And that's who he is for me. Now let's, let's just look at, drill down into that just a little bit deeper and realize and see that as David begins with God, He doesn't ask God to do something. He begins with who God is. Look at it closely. Does he say, God, I am so in the dark. Please shed light on my situation. That's not what he says. That's asking God to do something. He begins by reminding himself as he talks to God, you are the light even in this situation. I am in the dark, but you're not. So I will not fear. And then when he looks at God's first, that's when he sees his whole situation in a new light. When the wicked advance against me to devour me. And some translations actually have the word slander there because that word devour talks about eating up. It's, 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 it's an action of the mouth and they think it's maybe talking about somebody who 
tries to devour somebody with their mouths, the words they say. When the wicked advance, advance against me to devour me, although ultimately they're the, the ones who will stumble and fall, not me. Though an army besiege me, with my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Wow. What would it be like in your situation? What might happen to you in your situation if you, did just, if you didn't just play mental chicken, do a stare down with that person, with that situation? What if you look to the God who is the rock, he is my light and my salvation. So, why are you afraid? For me, it's not just Saturday night. There are all kinds of things that come into my life and occasionally wake me up at light, night, or at least when I wake up at night, come to my mind in big kinds of ways. Over the course of the years, uh, the one discipline that has helped me in, in the night is to say to myself two things, and, and I do this very literally, and, and very regularly. Number one, you know what? This situation is still going to be here in the morning light. So I'm going to go back to sleep to get the rest I need to face it then. Self, go to sleep. And then, I do. I say to God, Lord, even in this dark hour, you are the light of the world. And in your light is life. And I say, good night, Lord. At one point, that became... Uh, such a so much of a nighttime groove that when I was in a small group it was it was you know we were meeting until late at night and I was tired and somebody asked me to pray and I said oh great and I prayed and at the end talking to God I did not say amen I simply said good night Lord <laughs> I did Every, everybody opened their eyes slowly with a bit of a, an amusing smile I never told them where it came from that's it good night Lord David looks at God first, and then he looks through God at his situation, and his perspective changes. And then, number two, he lays out his request to God. His one thing, God, I see who you are, and I trust in what that means about who you will be in this situation, but can I ask you one favor? What is it he asked for? And in asking, I think he's actually talking to himself once again. Verse four, one thing I ask from the Lord this is the only thing I'm seeking that I want above all in this situation that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Four. Why does he want to seek him in the temple? In the day of trouble, he will keep me safe if I'm in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and in doing that I will see that he has set me high upon a rock. What's the temple? And what's the temple have to do with a rock? Well, the temple of Jerusalem, which was not yet built when David writes this psalm, the temple of Jerusalem would be built. He knew where it was going to be built. He had a place set aside for it. It would be built on the highest point, the highest rock in Jerusalem, literally the most prominent rock. Now, we tend to think of a temple as an extravagant, ornate, religious symbol, don't we? But for David, the temple was way more than that. The temple was a symbol, all right, but what the temple was a symbol of was the relational, ruling, real-life presence of God. Our God is not removed from this world. He is very much in my world. We talk about having, having a relationship with God. And we talk about God being present everywhere. The concept of the temple brings those two things together. 
You can have a relationship without presence, and you can certainly have presence without a relationship. When, when LaDonna and I were courting, most of our relationship was from a distance, a long distance, by road, 4,500 kilometers. Not going to do that in a weekend. We had this on-again, off-again relationship in, in our last year of college, and she finished, went to Vancouver. I moved out to a Toronto satellite town, and we broke up. And in our case, distance really did make the heart grow fonder, and we got back together again by snail mail letter. And for the entire year, well, actually, year and a half before we were married, we saw each other face-to-face twice for two one-week periods. Like, what kind of a risk is that? We had a relationship, and it grew stronger. But it wasn't a relationship of presence, and believe me, presence was a whole lot better. But the temple was more thing. It wasn't just relationship and presence coming together. I love the way Josh Butler puts it, puts it in his book, The Pursuing God. Israel saw the temple as something like the umbilical cord of the world. God resided there as king, and from his temple, his kingdom was mediated through his people to the nations. And so the temple represented both the relational presence of God and the ruling center of God over all the nations, over all situations, for all people. David is praying that he will know in this fear-inducing experience the strength of God's relational ruling presence. That's what temple meant to David. It wasn't a building he was looking for. It was what that building meant, the personal strengthening presence of God. And it was that personal strengthening presence of God that may be able to say, may, made him able to say, why am I so afraid? I, I am so secure, so solidly planted on the most solid, stable rock there is. So d- does that just sound like a bunch of pious religious platitudes? Like a whole lot of irrelevant mental gymnastics? Like you're just trying to play tricks with your mind? Well, what is crippling fear? It's your mind playing tricks on you, right? So why would I not want to reverse that and play tricks on my mind? Especially if it's not tricks. Especially if it's reality. To see how powerful this image of temple is, we need to do just a bit of an overview of of the presence of God in the temple, in, in, in the story of God. It starts where? Well, where everything started, in the garden, with God and humanity having this relational, ruling, presence thing, real, walking together. The relational presence of God was as real and as tangible as it could be, but we walked away. And the journey becomes not one of humanity pursuing God, but of God pursuing us. It's a bit of a winding journey with a high point when God takes this people that he created for himself to the desert and then to a mountain The place of danger, as we saw last week, but also a place where literally it appears like heaven and earth meet. And the creator once again connects with his creation, a huge light show and pyrotechnics, and and God gives them on Mount Sinai the law. I love the way Josh Butler, again, in The Pursuing God, talks about this experience. The Ten Commandments, he says, are not about how to get God to like you. They're about how to live together because God likes you. How to live because God loves you. No sooner had God laid down the Ten Commandments and the people have this affair on him on the night of their wedding to him. They create this idol and have this orgy. And what does he do? He proposes a second time. And they say yes to him one more time. And he gives them the plan 
for the home in which he will live as a real presence with them. First of all, a portable temple, a tabernacle, they called it, and then later on, a permanent temple. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is is about this on-again, off-again relationship of God with his own people. But then along, as had been promised, along comes Jesus, whom God has promised all along will be the one to make this relationship right. And Jesus comes onto the scene publicly, and what is the first thing he does? John chapter 2. He turns water into wine, into the best wine, the real thing, using ceremonial vessels from the temple. It's a signal. The real is now here. And then Immediately, according to John's account, he goes into the temple on the day of the year, the Passover, where they celebrated God's rescuing them from Egypt, taking them to Sinai, and becoming their real relational presence. And on that day of the year, Jesus walks into the temple with a whip and starts kicking everyone out, turning over all the furniture. And when the temple authorities asked him, who gave you the authority to do this? He said, destroy this temple, I'll build it up again in three days. He's talking about the temple of his body, as his followers realized later. What Jesus was doing was not just cleansing the temple so much as he was signaling that the temple would be destroyed because it's no longer necessary. He was the real, relational, ruling presence of God in the real world. And in his death, he destroyed every barrier, our sin, our tendency to walk away from God and live as if we don't need him. He destroyed the barrier and says in his last prayer, um, in John chapter 17, before his disciples, he said, may they come to see that I am in them and that you are in me. The temple, the real relationship the real relational and ruling presence of God in me. That's what David is longing for. Now let's see what that tells us about how to leverage our fears. You see, if we're honest, when we ask ourselves, self, what are you afraid of? And the follow-up question, why? What are you really afraid of? Do you realize what our core fear reveals to us? Our core fears expose our core desires. We're afraid because at the heart, our fear is that what we really want, we will not get. And when we get close to getting what we think we want, we just know it's going to be taken from us. And if what we want is something related to this world, there's not much that can't be taken away from us. The genius of David. The reason he is called a man after God's own heart is not because he's perfect. The genius of David is that he invites God right into the core of his worry center to evaluate how he thinks. So Psalm 139, into Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. Reveal to me my core fears that my nighttime worries show that I have. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Offensive ways are not just sin that we think of in terms of behaviors that are bad. Offensive ways are any thought that does not see nor want God at the center. Any thought that doubts the strength I have in the God who rules and loves me. 
In our fears, we have to search our heart in two ways. Number one, what is it that my fear is pointing to that I really want but don't think I can have? Is my one desire for the relational presence of the God who has pursued me to death and has died to be with me? Am I making that my one big desire? Do I really understand, number two, the power, the protection, the security I have with the God of the universe who is real and present in me, in Jesus? The psalmist does not yet know how real God's presence will become, how full his desire would be realized later when Jesus came. But he sees God as the one who will do that and it allows him to pray again, talking to God and then in prayer, talking to himself. Verse seven, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek your face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. And then he names it. He said that even our core relationships, the ones that are most secure, should be the most encouraging, affirming, can be destroyed. It hurts, it scars, but we still not have to be, do not have to be afraid. Though my father and mother forsake me, I know the Lord will receive me. There is a relational ruling presence at the center of it all that gives strength and that heals Lord, help me to see it, help me to know it, help me to rest in that and that alone. You see, we sometimes in religious circles use the word salvation. Salvation is not just about being rescued from something. Salvation is to become secure in the one who has rescued you from everything. And in seeing that, the psalmist makes three core commitments to himself and to God. Number one, Verse 11, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I will not use fear as an excuse to do things that are contrary to what you want and how you want me to live and what you want me to say. Some of us give ourselves the excuse to lash out and hurt people with our words because we were, well, we were just reacting. No. That's not dealing with our fear. That's living in fear. Fear is never an excuse to do the wrong thing. The one who sees God first allows fear to be the opportunity to dare to do the right thing. Some of us have made choices, even at core, in parts of the core longings of our heart regarding marriage that were short-sighted and not in the way God calls us to live because we were afraid the right one wouldn't come along. Right? The question to ask is, what choice would I make if I really lived in the relational ruling presence of God? Number two, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Some of the fears we have are not overblown. They're realistic. You can't stop people from talking about you. You can't control what people think about you. You can't ask God to protect you from and in the natural consequences that will happen that you can't control. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that, you know what? You'll probably suffer wrongly when you do good. But that's an opportunity like Jesus to simply entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Just because you don't defend yourself, just because you don't fight back, that does not mean you're 
giving in and agreeing. No, it might mean you're letting go to God. Finally, last two verses, back to where we started. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take care and wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord? Well, it's an ambiguous preposition, actually. Quite often better translated as wait on the Lord. What's the difference between waiting for the Lord and waiting on the Lord? Well, to wait for God is to sit there as patiently as possible for God to do something. To wait on God is to focus on who it is you're depending on, not what it is you're wanting Him to deliver. It's the same word as that great statement in Isaiah chapter 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You see, the idea of waiting that is in the mind of the psalmist and what God invites us to do is what has sometimes been called the exchanged life. I love that phrase. You see, at the moment we trusted Christ, God made an exchange. He, he took us, all of us, he gave us himself, all of himself, the righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin from us and gave the right, us righteous standing before God in Jesus. That's why Jesus calls us brothers. It's, a, it's actually a twofold exchange. He, he, he charged my deficiencies, my sin, to Jesus. That's his death. And he gave Jesus' righteousness to me. And he gives us in that the personal presence of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, inside of me to help me see it and get it and live it. When I graduated from college, my pastor at the time gave me the biography of a great missionary to China. still have it. Obviously, at some point, I used this as an anvil to hammer something on, but I've got it. Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. Last half of the 19th century, Hudson Taylor lived. He died in 1905 after 50 years of working in China. Many times the only white person in a group. But, but for many years, here's this guy who was seen as a hero back in North America, as he worked hard for God, he felt like he was living a substandard kind of life with God. He didn't really have enough trust in God. He, he read in John that Christ said to abide in me. And in Hebrews, he was told that he could rest in Christ. But he just couldn't seem to do it. For him, it, it wasn't so much fear as it, as it was guilt. But the principle is the same. Here's what he says uh, in, in one of the... In, in the chapter that's in his biography that's called The Exchanged Life, this is in a letter he sent. He says, I knew that if only I could abide in Christ, whatever that means, all would be well. But I could not. I, could, I would begin the day with prayer, determined not, my take, not to take my eye off him, even for a moment, but pressure of duties and sometimes very trying and constant interruptions, apt to be so wearying, caused me to forget him. And it led him to years of feeling inferior and working harder. He called it, he used the term striving. I knew, he said, that I was powerless. I told the Lord so and asked him to give me help and strength. Sometimes I almost believed that he would keep and uphold me. But on looking back in the evening, alas, there was but sin and failure to confess and mourn before God. He says, I strove for faith, but it would not come. I tried to exercise it, but in vain. And then he says, when my agony of soul was at its height, 
a sentence in a letter from Deer, and he names the name of some man, was used to remove the scales from my eyes and the Spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Jesus. I had never known it before. And here was his secret. How was I to get my faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but simply by resting in the one who is faithful. It's powerful, folks. That's what it means to wait on God. That's what David is talking about. Do a transfer of the problem to God's hands. When we become one of Jesus' own, all our problems become his problems, and, and we can rest. So as the worship team comes up, leads us out of here, just a couple of questions. Number one, what is it you're really afraid of? Do you know? Have you explored that with someone? Number two, does it point to something you're still hanging on to? Number three, what is the exchange that God is inviting you to make with him today? Lord, we realize that we cannot fathom the extent to which you are our rock. And Father, I pray that we will live this week exchanging our fears for the rest that you give us in you, in Jesus. Because we receive everything it is that he has done for us in your name. Amen.